Right. Let's open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 as we continue our series through the last book in your Bible. Revelation 7, starting in verse 1. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. Even when it is so beautifully strange, like the book of Revelation, we love your word because your word tells us all about you. It is your revelation to us that we might know you. But it also helps us to see and understand your plan and your ways, and it also helps us to understand our, ourselves. Lord, we thank you for your revelation, and we pray that you would teach us today as we look at it together, that we would not be mere observers of your word, not just hearers that we would be doers who obey from faith. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever experienced fear, real fear, and not that the stakes have to be super high, life or death fear, but fear that is real nonetheless, something that you actually experience, a kind of dread. It could be a phobia. I have a debilitating fear of spiders. Don't play with me. Uh, and uh, it's irrational. It's totally irrational. Like wasps, hornets, bees, snakes, bears, uh, what it, Cubs fans. I don't care. Things don't. I'm not really like things don't gross me out or, or freak me out. I'm not afraid. Spiders cannot handle. I'm really, really afraid. Um, if you ever experience fear, what you really want is assurance. You don't just want safety. People think, like, I just want safety. I just want the spider to be kept away. I want it behind glass that I don't even see. Like, it's not just that you, it's not just that you want the safety. You want the assurance of that safety. Because the difference is, uh, maybe you're safe, but how can you know without the assurance? We want it. It's like if you, if you play with kids or if you have kids or maybe you remember as a kid uh, your dad telling you to do something like, oh, I don't know, like, what's, like something we all do. Like, like when you tell your, your five-year-old to jump off the, the roof of the garage, right? So that's a normal thing. So you're like, hey, just come on. Your mom's not home. Just, just jump. I gotcha. And when they say, you promise you'll catch me, I promise. Then they're like, okay, okay, I got the assurance. Dad's going to catch me. Let's do this. Like, that's, that's what I mean, right? Like, it's, they, we need a, a kind of assurance. But even then, assurance sometimes 
needs to be given in a more dramatic or more formal way. Sometimes we need more, like, I was thinking about this this week. I think about it almost every week, actually, and I don't know why lately it's been on my mind, but I remember, like a lot of you remember, and some of you are too young to know this, but uh, to remember this, but I remember when you would buy uh, over-the-counter drugs like aspirin and there would be no seal on it, right? You could just pop it open and look inside. Do you remember that? Until 1982. Because in 1982, right here in Chicagoland, we had someone taking bottles of, of aspirin, of Tylenol, technically, and uh, tampering with the ca- capsules, putting cyanide in the capsules, bringing them back into the store, putting them on the shelf. In the Chicago suburbs right here, seven people died. Kids died. Never caught the person or people responsible. That was 1982. After that, everything changed. They got seals. That's when we all started complaining about child tamper-proof stuff and all these things. And, and everything was sealed up. There's not just cotton on the inside. It's cotton, plastic seal, rubber stamp, the whole thing. It, it was much more complicated because we needed assurance that this thing is safe. Well, the world, and that should be an example, the world is a dangerous place. Yes, the world is beautiful and magical and special and wonderful and all of that, but it's also scary dangerous too. It's filled with darkness and hate and evil and pain and suffering and affliction and questions that we don't ever get the answers to. It's filled with loneliness and isolation and depression and discouragement. The world is scary because it's dangerous and it's painful. And here is the one truth I think we can hold on to together from this passage and this particular vision. God promises, he promises to protect and to preserve his people throughout their days on the earth. It's a big promise, but it has to be understood Because when God promises to protect you, he may not protect you in the way that you think you need protection. But he will promise, he does promise to protect you and to preserve you in the best and most important ways. God's promise is that he will protect and preserve his people throughout their days on the earth. Let's look at this. Now, before we really get into chapter 7, just a really brief, just a half step back. Just a half step back. We're not going all the way back to the beginning of Revelation. But... um, We do have in chapter 6 this vision of the seven seals, right? There's a scroll in the right hand of God who's sitting on the throne, and on the scroll are are these seven seals. And no one can open the scroll, but the scroll needs to be opened. And so they look, no one is able, no one is worthy, except we see the Lion of Judah, who when you look is the Lamb, right? It's the Lamb of God. It looks as though he's been slain, but he lives. It's Jesus, and he's there. Only he is worthy to open up that scroll. Now, if you open up that scroll, what you see is the unfolding of God's sovereign plan until the end, right? It's justice, it's judgment, it's redemption, it's everything. And so Jesus begins to open the seals one by one. And as he opens the seals, we see what's unfolding throughout the whole church age today, And in the first four seals, we have the four horsemen, right? We have these four horses. The seal is broken, and then these horses are let loose into our world, and they are not not show horses. These are dangerous creatures who have riders on them, and the four horses essentially represent evil, war, famine, and death. 
In other words, sin has now uh, happened in the world and in, in response to sin, there is this consequence and the consequence of sin is the release of, of evil, of, of death, of, of famine, of war, violence, persecution, chaos and destruction comes upon the earth in response to sin. It's a consequence of sin. It's also a form of judgment. So the four horsemen are, are riding across the world as these four seals are open. And then the fifth seal is open. And when the fifth seal is open, we see that it's the, this crying out of the martyrs of God, crying out for justice. These are the, the followers of Jesus who have been martyred for their faith. And they're saying, when will we see final justice? When will the day come? And the Lord says, not yet, because there are more of you that will die first. And once that number is complete, then it will be the day of the Lord. Then the sixth seal is broken. And when the sixth seal is broken open, that begins the day of the Lord. And creation begins to collapse on itself. And the wicked are going to be held accountable. And then we don't get to the seventh seal. There's a pause. There's a pause, right? We're getting to the climax, right? But now everything stops. And it's not an intermission, like when you're at a play and you stretch your legs and you go to the bathroom and you get a drink and then you come back. It's not that. It's not an intermission. It is a parenthesis. It's a, it's a pause of this current story and another vision is given before the first vision is completed. And the reason this is, is because the vision of the seven seals is so heavy, it's so big, it's so dark, it's, it's showing us a world that is scary. We need some encouragement. In other words, Lord, it sounds like as these seals are broken that it is, it is going to be pain and de death and suffering. And what, I mean, how am I supposed to manage? How am I supposed to live in all of this? And so we have this other vision. It's a vision of these four angels four winds. Look at verses one and two of chapter seven. After this, after the sixth seal, not the seventh, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Now, so he's seeing this vision, sixth seal, judgment day. Wow, this is heavy. Pause, another vision four angels at the four corners of the earth. Now, um, let's just say these four new angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Uh, the four corners of the earth, the Bible does not teach cosmology of any sort. It's not a science book. Okay, so it's not teaching science here. Uh, the, it, the Bible is not advocating for a flat earth or a four-cornered earth or a hollow earth or, although that's cool, uh, the, 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 it's not advocating for any of that. It's simply using a common description of the expanse of the world. These four angels are posted in such a way that they oversee and rule over the entire thing. They're, they've been given a delegated authority and they, they control the wind which brings about all catastrophes and danger in creation. They stand there to rule these four Winds. What are these four winds? Well, the winds, you know, kick up storms and tornadoes and all this kind of stuff, you know, hurricanes. A lot of scholars believe, a lot of them, believe that the four winds are actually another way of talking about the four horsemen or the four horses because they're doing a lot of the same stuff. 
right? It's death, it's pestilence, it's, 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 it's chaos, it's, it's danger, it's trial, it's trouble, it's tribulation. Whatever these winds are, they are dangerous, they are deadly. And these four angels are there to temporarily hold them back. These winds. These winds which would clearly be a consequence of sin, like the four horsemen. These winds which uh, would function in some ways, sometimes, as, a, as an act of God's judgment. These angels are told, hold them back. Right? Look at verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea. Let me just stop for a second. Right? They've been given power to use these four winds to harm earth and sea. Right? Destruction, death, judgment, much like the four horsemen. So he calls out with a loud voice, verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. They're temporarily restraining. Why? Because God's servants have not yet been sealed. Once the servants of God are sealed, then they can let loose. Then they can let go. The four horsemen can ride. The winds can blow. But not until then. The servants of God. What are the servants of God? Until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The servants of God here and the 144,000 of the same group, it all represents the same people. The entirety of the elect. All of God's people. All of Christ's followers. It is the entire household of God. They must be sealed. The fact that the New Testament frequently, again and again, Old Testament as well, but that the New Testament uh, assigns this title of servant or bond slave or slave, not just to apostles like Paul, Paul calls himself that, or James calls himself a servant, but to believers as well. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's our place. We recognize that he is the master and we are the servant. We are now not slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, servants of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our identity. The servants must first be sealed. Sealed. We kind of know what a seal is, right? Envelope seal, wax seal, right? Seal on a canister, seal on a bottle. We know what a seal is. We kind of we get it. But there's a connection here to Ezekiel chapter 9 that's interesting. Right? There's, there's a kind of a parallel. Right, so get the picture. Four angels holding back the winds. They're told, hold it back. Don't let them loose until, until the people of God have a seal on their forehead. And then when you go to Ezra chapter 9, what's happening? In Ezra 9, um, there's, this is, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 9. In Ezekiel 9, Ezekiel is, um, he, he's, he's in his like, second vision. And, and in this vision, the Lord is saying now, he's commanding his angels to go in and to destroy, to act as, as, as in his place for judgment. They're going to slaughter much of Israel for their wickedness. Except there's one angel 
And one angel, he says, now for you, you need to go down there and find all of the people who are faithful to me and put a seal on their forehead and they will be safe. Listen, just listen to um, Ezekiel chapter nine, verse four. The Lord said to him, this particular angel, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In other words, find the ones that aren't hypocrites. Find the ones that are actually grieving and mourning over their sin and the sins of their brothers and sisters. Find the people who have a heart for me and a heart for their neighbor who hate wickedness. Those are mine. We'll protect them, but everybody else is going to be judged. Seal on the forehead. So there's, there's, there are parallels here. We get the idea of, of what, what this vision is, is communicating. There's going to be a mark placed on, on God's people, and that is a sign that they are going to be protected and preserved from the trouble, the trial, and the tribulation. The mark on the forehead. Can I just say... If, don't, the mark on the forehead isn't a real mark. I mean, this one, he's easy for us, right? Because like, we know context where this is happening, what's going on. It's not a, it's not, it's not a face tattoo. I'm not, not there's anything wrong with that. It could be. Anyways, it's, 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 not, it's not a microchip. And just like the people of God have a mark on them, the mark of God, and then the people of the world have a mark on them, the mark of the beast, it's not a microchip, guys. I'm going to say with certainty. It's not what it is. Now, the microchip might be a bad idea, or whatever the new boogeyman is of the day. It might not be a good thing to get. Not the mark of the beast, because that's not how this functions. That's not how Revelation is written. It's not what it means. It, 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 it doesn't even give us that sort of an understanding of what the mark is or does. We'll get to the mark of the beast later. For now, understand this, that the people of God are sealed with a mark. It's a mark of some kind. It's invisible. It's spiritual. It's not physical, but it's real. It's real. And it's a seal, right? It's a mark of some kind. And, and uh, William Hendrickson, he was a commentator, he, he said that this seal of God that he puts on his people, it does what seals do. Right? So, like, um, it's, uh, it prevents tampering, right? Back to Tylenol. It prevents tampering. Like, you can't get in there and mess it up. And if you do, I mean, obviously it's going to be known. But a seal, you know, there's a level of protection there with a seal. Or that a seal um, ensures that it's, it, it's of its proper owner, right? So, like, a, uh, when you have a seal on you, it identifies where you come from or who you belong to or whose this object is. And third, he said it, it, it verifies authenticity, right? That, uh, that, that the thing that's been sealed is real. It's genuine. And I think that's helpful. Those who have been sealed by God are the people who know the Lord. They are the people the Lord knows. And they are set apart and promised to be safe. Now, this, uh, this servant, this, these servants that have to get marked, John says, then I hear the number. I'm like, thanks, John, because numbers make everything easier. Uh, he's like, there's the number of these servants, and the number is 144,000. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So I'm going to tell you up front. This is a number, one of many, in apocalyptic literature in this prophetic book of Revelation that is not intended to be taken literally. Numbers are rarely to be taken literally in apocalyptic literature. 
They serve as symbols and tools and visual representations of ideas and these dramatic uh, visions so that we can picture what's happening. Now we've got a number, 144,000, which is a lot. But it's 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from, and I'm not going to read all the 12s, 12,000 from, these are the tribes listed. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. Now, if you don't know what the 12 tribes of Israel are, or is, the 12 tribes uh, were the, the, the groupings of Israel that people had become a part of before their entrance into Canaan, or the Promised Land. So they were rescued from Egypt, brought out into the wilderness, and they, they got grouped into these, these tribes, and these tribes were named after uh, the descendants of the children of Jacob, his 12 kids, named after his descendants. The problem is, uh, the list is wrong. I mean, sort of wrong. It's, it, there's a couple names not there, and there are a couple of names there that aren't normally there, right? So if, you, if you're paying attention, you start to go back and you're flipping back and forth, your Old Testament, and, and you're looking and you're like, okay, so the tribe of Dan is not here, but Levi is in. And the tribe of Ephraim isn't here, but Joseph is in. You remember Joseph, one of Jacob, Joseph's grandkids were listed previously, but now it's Joseph. So why the change? What's going on? You know, and Levi, right, that's where we get the, the priestly line there that serves in the temple, we know who Joseph is. Right? Joseph is the one that ultimately saved his family from famine at the end of Genesis. There are lots of reasons given as to why. Some names were taken out, other names were put in. Names that Jews would understand and appreciate what the, the, what's being communicated here. But there's no explanation as to why. There is nowhere that explains in the Bible why those two are out and others are in. Usually, some of the reasons are like, well, you know, we start talking about um, Dan and things like that. Like, they were idolatrous and, you know, they weren't very faithful. But even the order is messed up here. Perhaps. Perhaps the reason that the order is different uh, as they're listed and some names are out and some names are in is because we're not supposed to be interpreting this super literally as if the only people that are going to be sealed during this period of tribulation which expands from the time of Christ's ascension to his return that it's only for a little 144,000 people out of the nation of Israel. Maybe the 144,000 out of the whole tribe of Israel is a is a picture that represents all of the servants of God. All of God's people. 144,000. That's 12 times 12 times 1,000. You know how I knew that? Because I'm smart. Because everybody told me. All the commentators talk about it. See, 12 times 12 times 1,000. I can't even do that math. That's probably easy for most of you. 12 times 12 times 1,000, that's how they get to 144,000. And again, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of wondering, a lot of conjecture that I think is, is fair and interesting, right? Like the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 uh, disciples, or the 12 apostles. It, you know, it, it, I, I get it. It, 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 it makes sense that these numbers that are used in this book, 12 in particular and 1,000, they represent completeness and perfection. We have here a way of visualizing something that you can't really visualize. How do you visualize all of God's people throughout time? How do you visualize all of the followers of Christ from his 
from his ascension to his return. You can't. But then we get a picture. Oh, 144,000 of the 12 tribes. Right? All, all of God's people. God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now we can see it. They receive the seal. And with the seal comes protection from evil and tribulation. But not from pain and suffering. Not from disaster or affliction or isolation or loneliness or depression. So what, kind, what good is this protection? What, what are we getting protected from? See, God never promises to uh, protect you from hardships, difficulty. In fact, the opposite is true. Uh, Jesus generally will promise you persecution and difficulty and a lack of peace in the world because you're following him. He said, if you're following me, what do you think is going to happen? You're, you're going to have a rough time because they hated me. They're going to hate you. When it comes down to it, when you are saying, like, listen, people have to choose to either follow Christ or forsake him. There's nothing in between. And if you don't follow Christ, you're going to be condemned. Or even if you're just following the way of Christ and trying to love your neighbor in all the ways that the Bible prescribes, you're going to be hated for that. Because in doing so, you're imposing some sort of, sort of, some sort of alien ethic upon them that they do not appreciate or value themselves. No, everyone suffers, everyone hurts, everyone experiences loss, loss and death. We're not protected from physical pain, but we are protected spiritually. God will protect you and preserve you. He will protect your soul and he will preserve your faith. And believe me, that's much more important than your temporal body. He will protect your soul. He will preserve your faith. See, the four winds are no longer restrained. They're blowing. The four horses are riding. There is death and chaos and destruction and persecution and disappointment. There is every kind of affliction that you can imagine running wild in this earth. And sometimes we bring it upon ourselves. Sometimes we're victims. Sometimes there's really nobody that you can point the finger at at all. Sometimes it's persecution because we're Christians. Sometimes it's just the consequence of living in a broken world. But we're protected. Our souls are kept intact and our faith is cultivated. You know what I see? I get to see this up close a lot. Uh, I think a lot of you have seen it as well. There, we have people in our church who have gone through terrible storms. The winds have completely blew their house apart. And yet they praise God. And yet they hold their head up. They do not curse the one who made them. They, they, they understand like Job, the Lord gave, the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. They understand that even though there is no escape from human frailty in this life, God preserves our soul so that in the next we are guaranteed an eternity that cannot be shaken at all. And when we say that God promises to protect and preserve his people throughout their days on the earth, it means that he is, he is equipping them and strengthening them and preparing them for the future, for an eternity. And I want us to look at one other passage, and that is Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Because this is what I see in many of your lives. I see this at work.
verse 3 of Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't uh, put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. He does not say that his suffering is, is great, or that it's good, or that he loves his suffering. Suffering oftentimes is the result of evil and evil people hurting innocent people. Sometimes it's circumstantial. He's not saying that he loves his suffering or that he's happy about his suffering. He's saying that in the experience of suffering, he can rejoice. We rejoice in our suffering. How is that? How can you have joy in the midst of the winds blowing so hard? Because we know, we have assurance, which calms our fears, we know that suffering produces endurance. Right? You want to make it all the way? You want to endure? You want to be strong? You want to be healthy? You want to not quit and not give up? Because sometimes we feel like quitting and giving up. If you want to make it to the end and persevere and be strong, then you have to experience suffering because that's the instrument God uses to make you stronger. He uses the evil intentions of wicked men to make you stronger. He uses the consequences of evil and corruption all around you to make you fit, to make you spiritually vibrant so that you can go all the way. So that you don't barely make it to the finish line, just crawling on your hands and knees. He wants you to be strong and endurance comes through suffering. But not only that, we know this. Suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. You see, it's not just that we're going to make it all the way that he's going to somehow give us some sort of super energy, like an energy boost on some kind of game app that you're playing on your phone. Your character actually changes, like your heart changes, your mind changes, you change, so that you become a better version of yourself. Right? You begin to love, you begin to experience patience at a deeper level. I mean, I, you've seen it, right? You've, you've seen people who suffer and trust the Lord and their character develops. The godliest people I know have gone through some hell, right? Some suffering, some afflictions. And of course, it wasn't judgment from the Lord on them, but all pain and afflictions that is in this world looks a lot like judgment. They suffered, but they persevered and endured, and their characters were formed, and they delight in their God. And character produces hope, Paul says. Character produces hope because, well, hope is a part of good character, right? In other words, you trust the Lord. You believe all things, right? You look to him. Your confidence is in him. And hope doesn't disappoint because we know it. We've experienced it. God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit who himself is called a seal, right? We are sealed by the Holy Spirit the moment we believed, Yeah, the world is, uh, is a dark place. But those who have received the seal, they persevere. Their faith intact. And that invisible seal becomes visible when our faith is seen in the midst of our afflictions. Right? Our suffering becomes the backdrop 
that makes the brightness and the contrast of our faith so vibrant and evident. Jesus saves, right? Jesus saves. He is our only hope in life and in death. And of course, the former always leads to the latter. That's why he needs to be our hope in both. So remember the theme of the book of Revelation, right? The victory of Jesus and his church over the devil and the world. And why was it written? It was written to those who experienced tribulation, which we all do to varying degrees, that we might be encouraged that though we fight and suffer and are afflicted, and though it looks oftentimes like evil is winning, Christ has assured us of the victory. Jesus is saying, you can trump. You can trust me. I'll catch you. I've got you. I've put my seal upon you. And you are mine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, teach us today. That, that you would help us to see and really embrace the knowledge of your love and your plan. That you would encourage us in the midst of our pain and confusion. That though everything appears chaotic, you are still in control. And that though we feel weak and as if we cannot go on, we have the assurance that you will preserve us. That the good work that you've started in each of us carries to the end. That you strengthen the weak. And that your power is even more greatly highlighted in us when we are weak. In Christ's name, we seek your grace. Amen.